At Keeley Companies, culture sets them apart. They are dedicated to the safety, the well-being, and the career growth of every employee, which they refer to affectionately as the Keelians. Recently, they launched a new cultural pillar called Keeley One, focusing on diversity and inclusion. Senior Project Manager Henry Isaacs says that understanding everyone is unique and different is critical. We have to recognize our individual differences and that everyone deserves to be included and have their voice heard. For Keeley, this focus on diversity and inclusion has been a huge morale booster. It makes people more excited to come into work, which correlates to greater retention and enhances their overall culture. Now, when establishing your culture of diversity and inclusion, Henry has some great advice for us. Have an open mind and be willing to step out of our comfort zone. That's number one. Number two, take the time to truly learn, to seek wisdom around different cultures, different races, and different religions. Do the work, in other words. And then thirdly, reach out to someone different from you and be intentional in having an open and honest conversation with them. End the sentences with question marks. It's great advice from Henry, and I want to thank my friends from Keeley Companies for being proud sponsors, partners, and super fans of the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You may hear it in my voice, and as I continue to progress forward with the introduction, you're probably going to hear it even more clearly your friend, your family member, your colleague, as we sojourn forward in life, the recovery from laryngitis is on. I am getting better. The voice is still weak. It's a little bit faint today in the introduction of our guest. You're going to love this man. You are going to love his heart. You're going to love his message on redemption and what is possible in your life going forward. And today, rather than me spending a lot of your time having me prop up Jim McCluskey and talk about his work and talk about his life and talk about how you can step alongside of him and make a difference with him, we're going to let him do most of the talking. But as a little bit of a background story, Jim McCluskey is the founder of a movement. He's the founder of Centurion Ministries. It's the first organization devoted to getting wrongly convicted prisoners out of jail. These are people who've been spending their entire lives behind bars for a crime they have not committed. He spent his entire life doing this. He has now helped 65 innocents recover their life. Today, Jim shares his own path of destruction, eventually the redemption that came out of it, the laborious process of reinvestigating these cases, the emotional outcomes, those that he helped set free, the joy that they have taught him, their recovery toward wholeness and redemption in life. It is one of the most awe-inspiring stories I've ever had. Can you imagine spending time behind bars for a crime you, you did not commit? Jim is meeting with these individuals. He's meeting them where they are. He's loving them as they are, and he's helping them take the next right step forward back toward freedom. 
It's also a story I think you and I can borrow from as we deal with adversity, challenges, and anxieties in our own life today. So join us right now for a conversation on hope, on forgiveness, on sacrifice, with a man fearlessly dedicated to advocating for justice. His name, one more time, is Jim McCloskey. Jim, my friend, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. I've been looking forward to this day. Well, it, it truly is our honor, and the listeners have just heard me brag on you. If, if though, someone had bumped into you in a Princeton, New Jersey grocery store and uh, apologized, and then afterwards they said, to, hey, Jim, what, what do you do? What do you do for a living? When you were leading Centurion, how would you have responded to that? Well, in very, very simple and clear terms. Uh, I, I started a nonprofit organization many years ago called Centurion Ministries, and our mission and my mission in life is to identify and free those men and women across our country who, for whatever set of circumstances, are languishing in prison and, and serving life or death sentences for crimes they had nothing to do with. So we, we work to free innocent people in prison. And if their next question was, uh, are there many of those people? It sounds like probably a rarity, Jim. Are they hard to find? They're very easy to find. Back in the late 80s, when I was uh, knee deep into this work rather than shoulder deep now, I stated then and I, and I state now that an innocent person in prison in the United States is about as rare as a pigeon in the park. It's not uncommon at all. We only work on state convictions, uh, county convictions within in the United States. And I can't scientifically or empirically prove this, but I believe there are tens of thousands of innocent men and women in prison for serious crimes, serving long prison sentences for something they didn't do. The incidence of false incarceration, false imprisonment started to be um, recorded and chronicled by the National Registry of Exonerations, which consists of two law firms who started that up. They're very, very credible people and are considered so by both sides, the, the defense and the prosecution, if you will. There are now up to 2,800 and some uh, men and women who have been wrongly convicted and ultimately exonerated in the United States. Centurion Ministries, we've completed our work in, in 80 cases. It's, it's labor-intensive. Uh, most of our cases, although a few, are involved DNA, but most do not involve DNA. We freed 66 people who collectively have spent 1,488 years in prison for other people's crimes. Mm. So the, the reason why I feel today like I'm on a podcast with a friend is I've read your book. I know, I know the memoir. I, I've heard the interviews with John Grisham and, and a few of the others who have brought you on which means I also know not only the profound work you do and the opportunity to do it even more so going forward, Jim, but also the story that led to it. So we're not going to spend a ton of time taking a walk down memory lane, but I think it informs not only your journey, but also for the rest of our listeners, myself included, what could be possible in our lives that our past does not have to define our ability to influence life beyond our own going forward. So I'm going to back you way up. You're about five years of age. I think this story influences your character today. Your mother was diagnosed with polio. Would you just talk about being a little boy and, and witnessing this beautiful mother of yours enduring polio? Absolutely. And thank you for asking me about that. Yeah, I was five years old uh, living in the suburbs of Philadelphia, a place called Havertown. My 30-year-old mother in, in June of 1947 went to bed one night feeling fluish. 
She woke up the next morning and was paralyzed from the waist down. Polio virus had struck her like a thief in the night. This was a tremendous event that really changed our lives, our family's lives. Most people were scared to even be with our family because of this. But Mr. and Mrs. Boyd, who lived around the corner from us, they took me in until dad was able to get everything organized to, to tend to and nurse mother as she started to regain her, her life uh, and adjust to this, to this new disease. The boys had the courage to take me in, not knowing if I would bring with me to their household the polio virus. So Mrs. Boyd in particular was the, was the driving force there. And I've always hold her up as a model. She, she inspired me you didn't go into great detail around what your mother experienced or the Boyd family or how people would cross the street to get away from you. But in, in just reading between the lines, it strikes me as there are great similarities between the work you ended up doing later on in life and the experiences from your childhood that informed what, what it looks like to walk away from someone in need. Also, what it looks like to step forward and fight for someone in need. And your dad is not a perfect hero in, the, in, in anyone's story. And yet, this man, this tough East Coast guy went nowhere. He stood and fought and loved your mother until the finish line. My dad was an amazing human being. Yes, he had, he had a few flaws like we all do, but when he met mother in Ocean City in 1937 on a blind date, he fell immediately in love with her. She was the love of his life through thick and thin as the marriage vows stated. Dad stuck with mom out of love and devotion and loyalty. He was never, ever going to leave her side and never did. Dad was a model for our family that whatever adversity hits you, you must respond to it and do it in a, in a giving, positive, energy-expending way. He was an unforgettable character, as was mother, because the last thing in the world mom wanted was for people to feel sorry for her. She had a naturally a gregarious, affable, friendly, cheerful personality. We could spend an awful lot of time rehashing the memories from mother and father, your childhood. It sounds like you had quite an eventful time in high school and college. We could spend a lot of time talking about that. You started very successfully in business, but midstream in life, you decide to pivot away from business and move in toward pastoral ministry. What was the inflection point? What, what stirred you to recognize a call to move away from what many others would claim to be, hey, that, that's success, into a completely different life trajectory? I was raised in an evangelical Presbyterian church, and every Sunday through grade school, junior high and high school, my brother and I would spend about six hours in church. And when I marched off to, to Bucknell University, I, I declared to my parents that I'm never darkening a, a church doorstep again, and I didn't until I returned to Philadelphia from Japan. I, I, I went to work, I got a great job with a, with a management consulting firm. And if you would look at me from the outside, you, I guess you would consider that I was living a, a successful, well-paying uh, life and material things, but I was doing well in the business world. Two things were percolating within me mm. and at odds with each other. One was a disinterestedness in my business career started to overtake me and gnaw at me. I was losing my passion and zest for uh, success and business ambition. 
at the same time, I joined a local Presbyterian church, and that was, if you will, a life-saving happenstance. And I began to see that the words of Christ really hit home when Jesus said that if you save your life, you will lose it. If you lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, you will find it. I thought that was speaking directly to me because what I want to do with my life is something very different than what I'm doing now. And I felt a call to leave the business world and go into the ministry to become a church pastor and hopefully use that position to transform and touch people's lives in a real significant way. You and I were talking right before we began recording about some of the work that we do at Live Inspired. And part of that has led us to arenas and school auditoriums and boardrooms. And occasionally we've had the opportunity and the honor of going to speak with those in prison. And every time, every single time, but in particular on the very first time, I get incredibly nervous before walking into a prison. You, you, you give them everything back, your idea, your cell phone, your keys, everything is left behind. They lock you in and you are among those who have already come before you. I'd like you to share the story of what it was like for you to walk in for the very first time. You're doing prison ministry. It's almost like you're, you're interning as you go through your training to become a minister. What was that first experience like for you, Jen? Just like it was for you, scary. Uh, at the seminary in my second year, uh, we have field education requirements. So I decided, well, rather than being assigned to a church or a hospital, um, I, I want to be a student chaplain at Trenton State Prison, which was, you know, 20 minutes down the road from Princeton. I volunteered for that program. I was assigned to two cell blocks. I was dressed in all black with a with a white collar, I looked just like a Catholic priest. My job was to go in these two cell blocks. It was what they called the Varum Readjustment Unit, which was a special prison for those inmates who caused trouble in their other state correctional institutions. Wow. They were punished and sent to the place that I was assigned as a student chaplain. Now, I'm 37 years old at this point. I'm in my second year at the seminary. I'm a Vietnam veteran. I was not a wet behind the ears kid. But the night before, my first day, I didn't get a week, a <laughs> wink of sleep. I was scared to death, couldn't eat. I was all kinds of paranoia went through my mind. And when I pulled up to the prison, I offered a, a prayer for courage and a spirit of calmness. And that was one of the prayers that was not fulfilled. Uh, so, but I went in there. And that first day I was being escorted onto the tier. We got down to about the sixth or seventh cell. And that inmate just screamed and yelled at me. And I can't even tell you the words that he used to tell me to get the hell off this cell block and he doesn't ever want to see me again. This is almost what I feared might happen. But over time, over time, I got to know that inmate. And as it turned out, thought I was a Catholic priest. He was anti-Catholic. And that's what set him off. I got to know him and uh, we formed a, a very good relationship. But yeah, I was, I was very nervous. But like anything else, you get used to it. Most of the, of the 40 men on this two cell blocks were friendly. They wanted somebody to talk to. Right. I was there to be their friend, not to evangelize, to talk about anything they wanted to talk about. And boy, for those three hours, two afternoons a week, by the time I, it was time to go home, right, it was like going back to heaven from hell. I was exhausted. 
Mm. But boy, they asked some really good questions. It was a stimulating experience, a growing experience, and it gave me a whole new view of inmates and prisoners and what these folks are really like, which is one of the reasons I, I volunteered for this uh, field education assignment. I've never been in a prison. I had no experience in any way, shape, or form with the criminal justice system. Never even been in a courthouse, never asked to be on a jury, anything. And I said, what, what are these people? You know, I considered them all, obviously, to be guilty, that they belonged where they were, that if they're there, they must have been rightly convicted. Um, I had no idea that there were possibly innocent people wrongly convicted in prison. Well, let's talk about one of those innocent people wrongly convicted. The, the journey, you've touched lives all around the world now, not only in, in the United States, but beyond. Ore de los Santos, one of the guys you meet on that very first day, talk about the crime he allegedly committed that had him locked up at this, at this cell. Yeah, well, his name was Jorge de los Santos, nicknamed Chiefy, and he was raised in the, uh, in the very harsh public housing projects in Newark, New Jersey. He was basically a, a lifelong heroin addict. At that time, he was in his fifth year of a, of a life sentence. He was convicted of a botched armed robbery of a used car lot. He was convicted based on an eyewitness who claimed that uh, when he was driving by that used car lot at the time, he heard gunshots. He looked through his rearview mirror and saw Chiefy and another man who he knew flee the scene. So Chiefy was arrested and indicted based on that eyewitness account. He's now thrown in jail. And lo and behold, a, an inmate there testified against him at trial, claiming that Chiefy confessed the crime to him while they were in jail together. It's commonly called a jailhouse confession. And based on nothing else uh, incriminating Chiefy other than those, those two witnesses. By the time I encountered him in 1980, Chiefy, he had beat the drugs. He was clean and had been clean for a long time. He was gregarious. He was fun. He was easy to be with. He was interesting to talk to. He asked a lot of good questions, but he insisted from day one, he insisted that he was an innocent man, not only that he was innocent, but that he was framed. He was purposely, intentionally framed by the prosecutor and the detective. I had a very difficult time accepting that as fact, as accurate, because at that point, I had always believed that the police and prosecutors have one noble mission, and, and that is to make sure they would never bring anybody to the bar of justice had they not uh, credible and sufficient uh, strong evidence to convict. Uh, they certainly would not countenance uh, uh, or suborn perjury or in any way play unfair. That was my view at that time. That is my view as well. And I'm a guy who grew up in the Midwest, lives in the Midwest. I've never really been behind bars for anything other than to let guys know who are there, ladies know who are there, that they are loved, that their lives matter. And when I read in this story that you're sharing with our listeners, it, it uh, blew me away and it made me mad and sad and angry. And I just could not believe this. And as heartbroken as I was to read about this, uh, you go from this chapter into the next and then into the next, and then into the next, and then into the next, and again, and again, and again, these stories keep creeping up of people choosing to do unethical, immoral acts that are putting people who are innocent behind bars. It, it's stunning, man. It's utterly stunning. 
Well, it was stunning to me. And as I said, I was in a total state of disbelief initially, but over time, uh, for the next three months, two afternoons a week, and I, I couldn't wait to get to Chiefy Cell because he and I connected personally and I was intrigued by his claims of innocence. He said to me, he said, look, why don't you get the trial transcripts and read them yourself? Which I did. I was able to obtain his trial transcripts and I read them and they pretty much confirmed everything that he said. This is what got me, what triggered me to, to do what I did. Chief, he says to me, uh, you've asked me a million questions for the last three months. I've answered them as honestly as I possibly could. And he says, I have a question for you. Do you believe I'm innocent? I said, well, I, I, I do believe you're innocent. He says, what are you going to do about it? I said, what do you mean, what am I going to do about it, Chief? I, I'm a seminarian. I'm, I don't know anything about crime and, and murders and the criminal justice system. He said, Jim, I've been on my knees for the last six years, praying to God to bring somebody and help me out of this hellhole, somebody to free me, to work towards my freedom. You don't know it, but you're that man. God works through human hands. In addition to the spiritual inspiration and my inspiration from Chiefy, the challenge, he was challenging my faith, rightfully so. And not from a human viewpoint, I had spent the last year and a half sequestered in this seminary. And I wanted to get out into the world and do something. And I saw this as a way to find something that I've been looking for my whole life. So I took a year off to try and move the ball forward to see if we can help get him out of there. As you step forward, you become a private investigator. You become an attorney. You become all these different job titles that you were not trained previously for. And you begin revealing evidence that so clearly paints a picture of a man wrongly convicted. As painful as that was to read and to identify, like, you know, it happens, I guess. What surprised me most is as you brought this new information to bear in front of those that helped put him behind bars, you were met with walls that grew higher and higher. People did not want to know the truth. Can you just speak to that for a while? Because it seems if you knew that you did something that put someone behind bars, you would be hopefully the first to say, man, we got to right this wrong. Well, knowing it and admitting it and conceding it are two different things. When I presented this new evidence to the trial prosecutor, I, I tried to explain to him that this wasn't your fault. You didn't know these things. And he got very angry and to get out of his office and never show up again. I believe that the, the reason he resisted me was because he knew it deep down inside. He knew that he had convicted an innocent man. And I asked Chief, I said, Chief, you, you were a drug addict. What, you know, why would they even bother to frame you for, he said, it's very simple because the detective's job is to clear a case and the prosecutor's job is to convict. And I was an easy throwaway for both of them to increase their own record. We could spend an awful lot more time unpacking two years of work you'd put into this on July 5th, 1983, uh, almost three years after you first walked in and, and met him. Talk about what it was like as he was released. Well, we, I got in those, in those three years uh, while working on his case. Um, and by the way, I spent that full year, full time working on his behalf. I returned to the seminary, continued to work for him. 
and uh, graduated in the summer of 83, which was the same at the same time that we were able to free Mr. De Los Santos. I got a great lawyer, Paul Castellero, who still works with Centurion to this day. He's unbelievable. Um, and Paul and I together worked on behalf of Chief ES. We have a number of other men and women across the United States in the intervening years. But Paul and I, Paul made a great presentation to a federal district judge. There was an evidentiary hearing. Uh, Paul put Kevin Kelly, the prosecutor, on the stand and just made it very clear that, uh, that Kevin knew that his star witness had testified in prior instances and that his witness was, was lying, was committing perjury. And the federal judge ruled that Kevin Kelly, the prosecutor, knew that he suborned perjury and that the, the, the witness himself was a reprehensible character whose testimony at a casual reading was false. So it didn't take a, a brain surgeon to figure this out. If he had any experience in the criminal justice system and the knowledge of how things really go down and work. So Paul and I picked Chiefy up at Trenton State Prison. Uh, the conviction was thrown out, he was exonerated and uh, it was time to bring him home to his wife, Elena, who had stood by him for many, many years, both during his drug addiction, trying to nurse him back to health and off the drugs before he was wrongly convicted and who had visited him every week, several weeks for the eight years that he was falsely incarcerated. So bringing him home to his devoted and lovely wife, Elena, was, that's what it's all about. That, that was, yeah, the joy is, you can't describe the joy and the satisfaction. And I might add, selfishly, the vindication, because a lot of people thought I was being conned by Chiefy. And I can understand people believing that, uh, but I wasn't. Uh, he, he, he never told me one lie. And the truth that he said was that he was framed and he was innocent and we proved both. The name Centurion, where did that come from? When I freed, uh, when Paul and I freed Chiefy in the summer of 83, um, by that time, I graduated from the seminary, got my master's divinity degree. Now I had another major choice to make. Am I now going to go, go on and get ordained as a, or as a Presbyterian church pastor, which was my original intention of going to seminary? Or by that time, Chiefy <laughs> had introduced me to three other New Jersey lifers, long story short, in whose innocence I had come to believe. Now, what am I going to do? Am I going to go on and get ordained? or set up an organization to free the innocent in prison, thinking only of these three men at that point. And I'm driving up to, to see Chiefy and Elena, you know, a couple of months after he was freed. And I'm thinking about this and struggling with the decision. And all of a sudden the name Centurion popped into my mind. The Centurion at the foot of the cross, who in the gospel of Luke looked up at the crucified Christ and said, surely this man was innocent. So, that's where the name come, uh, comes from. And, um, and it was, it was uh, at that time I was broke, uh, but my parents had come into uh, an extraordinary monetary windfall and they gave each of us three kids a $10,000 tax-free gift. I looked at that literally as manna from heaven. Uh, and uh, 
I, I felt this was a sign by God. Here's your, here's your capital. Get started. This is what I want you to do. This is why I led you to Chiefy Cell in the first place. You have written the book celebrating and sharing the stories of a, a few of the individuals who you've gotten to know, heard their stories, read the, read, read, read the report, and eventually liberated. Each of the stories, though, as you can attest to, Jim, could easily, easily be a book in and of themselves. What has motivated you to go into the corners, to head for the shadows, to remove the webbings that had covered all these things, to reveal the facts that have... have um, allow these innocent men to be, and ladies, to be put away for the rest of their lives? What, what is the ultimate motivation for you? The ultimate motivation? Well, the central core motivating factor that really got me started was, I believe that, that Christ has appointed this way. He knows my personality, my peculiarities, who I am, how I think, how I feel, and he designated or appointed this work for me, knowing who I am. So I little, I mean, I, I feel the call, the, the moment that I realized this, that this was to be my life's work, and that I was appointed by, to do this work by God. I remember that like it was yesterday. It's as clear as a bell as it is now. And that's not to say that over the last 40 years, I haven't struggled with, with my faith. Uh, it's been, it's been a, a back and forth roller coaster ride because of a number of things that I've, that I've seen and witnessed uh, in this criminal justice system, asking God, why? Why? Where are you? How do you, do you, are, do you exist, number one? And if you do, what is your role what, what role or influence do you have in human affairs? I'm not seeing it mm. on this hand, but on the other hand, I am seeing it because of the 66 people we freed. It's not easy. Once the conviction is, is, is secured, it, it, it has, the system has a vice-like grip on that conviction. It's tough to get, get those hands off, off the conviction. And each of the 66 uh, exonerations is a... Um, it's a miracle in and of itself. That's right. But but anyway, um, so that's that's been one. Secondly, this work, this mission, it gives me a tremendous sense of fulfillment and a belief that finally this is my destiny in life. This was, was what I meant to do. And when I, I I don't know if I said it to you earlier, or but um, I think I said it before we started this interview to you that. I read somewhere where we have two lives, the life that prepared us mm. and the life that we live after we're prepared. My first 37 years of life um, were, I believe, the Lord was preparing me to do this work. He was setting me up for circumstances that enabled me to follow him into this work. And then the life that I've lived was the last 40 years of actually doing the work. Um, secondly, um, by nature, having nothing to do with the spiritual part of things, by nature, um, I've always been, um, I have an adventuresome and an entrepreneurial spirit. And 
this is my very nature and what I love doing. I love starting, I love going from zero, from scratch and building something up, making something happen, uh, achieving whatever it is to achieve uh, against all odds. I'm basically a Don Quixote by nature. I'm a Don Quixote. And I, I do have a certain amount of idealism within me. Um, and the spiritual calling and the human nature of myself and my past meld together in order to produce this, be doing this work. It's a natural, it's a natural fit. On your website, there are pictures of these men from various stages in their life, many of them older because they spent anywhere between three to 30 years behind bars wrongly. And in every one of those pictures, what amazed me most is the joy, Jim, this honest childlike joy that all these guys who had spent for some the majority of their life in a dungeon, in a pit, who then were liberated and had the joy of life in them. Could you just speak to that for a moment? Because when, when I think about some of the you know missed flights, oh, I'm, I'm trapped in a city for a night and in the hotels, give me a break. These right. men done dealt with things that I can't fathom and you and I can't talk about. They've done dealt with the worst behind bars and now they're out and they're smiling and it's a sincere smile. Talk about that. Well, first of all, um, and this is a, this is a, a general consensus and just talking about this very thing with a number of the, of the people we freed over the years. And here's what they uniformly almost say. And that is this, the first five, 10 years, they're bitter, they're angry, they're full of hate. Um, they just wanna lash out at the world uh, for wrongly convicted them. And the only thing that keeps them going is the, is the truth of the matter because they know they don't believe the truth they know the truth and the truth is uh, what um, is, is that they didn't do it and through all this bitterness um, they finally and they're, they're they're maturing as individuals they're suffering um, and you know as, 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 as the Apostle Paul rightly pointed out, you know, character is, it produces endurance and endurance, suffering produces character, character produces endurance. Um, and, and so they also realize this bitterness I'm feeling is just eating me up. It's a cancer. It's harming and really hurting me, but nobody else. So they begin to slowly but surely let go of that anger and develop a different attitude, one of more openness. And focus on the positive, which is to get themselves out of this hellhole. And they, then they exert a, a, an effort. They write tons of letters to anybody out there who will listen to them to help free me. I didn't do this. They're very proactive in that way. And meanwhile, um, they're, they're connecting with the, with the outside community. Uh, their family members are starting to come back because they're, they're, they're easier to be with. Yeah. Um, and, and so once we free them, um, by the time we meet them and by the time I meet them or my colleagues meet them in prison, when we're considering whether or not to work for them, they're impressive human beings. 
Um, they've cleaned up their act. They're, they're mature, they're intelligent, they're, they're educated to a certain extent, and they know what they want to do. And they emerge from this loving people. Mm. They just want to be free. They want to hear the birds chirp. They want to drink a cup of coffee at, at a convenience. They want to do the normal things. They want to look at the stars. They just, they just want to breathe in and take in life. They appreciate life, every little thing about it, which we take for granted and don't even notice. Um, and so they're able to come out after usually on the average 25 years, by the time we free them, they've been in prison for an average of 25 years. As you pointed out, some well into their 30s, 144 years. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, now it's not easy. Don't get me wrong. It's not a piece of cake. It's not all peaches and cream. They all have... They all suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, whether they recognize that or not. And it takes a couple of years for them to get their feet on the ground and see the world for the way it is. When they initially get out, it's like they're a Martian landing on earth. They're, they're you know, it's, it's a surreal, it's not really real that they're out. The people they're dealing with, um, they don't really understand what I went through, I being the wrongly convicted. Um, but but then they they drop they they drop and the, their feet touch the ground, and they begin to pick up their lives. Some quicker than others. Some almost right away. A few take a couple of years, and they're Jim, able to do it. For our listeners, thinking, gosh, I mean, it, it it's an amazing story. It's it's so tragic this happens. But what can I really do about this? So can you can you give us some practical practical and pragmatic, actionable things that we could consider in our normal, ordinary lives, wherever we may find ourselves living today? Well, the, 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 the main thing that I can think of at this point, and it's not, it's not for everybody, it's not, but have an open mind, first of all. Don't think of prisoners or inmates those incarcerated people as bad, evil human beings, throw away the key and don't even give them a second thought. Try, if that's your mentality, if that's your view, try and open your mind uh, that that's, that's not the way most of them are. Now, of course, some of them are, of course. But, you know, even if inmates have done what they're in prison for, that doesn't mean that they're incorrigible, that they're not capable of, of, of change and transformation. I've seen it time and time again with the guilty as well as the, as well as the innocent. Um, and maybe even uh, if you belong to a church and your church uh, does or doesn't have some kind of a prison ministry where you can reach out to the incarcerated to be their friends, I would urge you to do that. And if you do that, your mind is going to be expanded and you're going to change your views once you make human contact with the incarcerated, guilty or not. Mm. Final question, Jim, before we shift into the Live Inspired 7. Many of our listeners are not tuning in today from the confines of a prison. They're not behind bars. They're not locked away, but they feel as if their life is extraordinarily hard. They, they feel in many regards like somehow it's unfair relationally or financially or in a million other ways. What encouragement, you know, you've been doing this ministry work now for decades from those who have taught you well, what encouragement would you maybe 
offer to us who feels if today we are prisoners? Well, if you're if you feel that you are prisoners, in my view, that's in your own mind. Your mind is telling you you're prisoners in one form or shape or another, when in fact we're not. We've been given this gift of life and uh, we're so lucky to be here on earth. Now, listen, that's not to say that uh, a lot of us have, have experienced some, some, some tremendous human loss and devastation um, and difficulty and adversity, but um, it's not the end of the road. You can always make the best of something that has really gone wrong in your life. And I lift up, I lift up these falsely incarcerated people. I mean, my God, can you imagine what it's like to be in the dungeon, in the bowels of prison for decades for something you didn't do? And what could be worse except for a painful terminal disease or something of that nature? Um, this is another form of a terminal disease. Um, and... Um, They've never lost their hope. Mm. Hope is what keeps them alive. And if we, in whatever we're facing in our own life, if we can somehow don't let that candle flicker out, that flickering candle go out, keep it, keep it going. Because sooner rather than later, somehow, some way, you're going to be set free of whatever you feel is imprisoning you, no matter how long it takes. If you persist, and patiently abide and keep it going. Well, man, you are, uh, you're, you're not flickering out. You are a massive torch shining and reflecting quite a bit of light. Jim, we have seven questions that we guide all of our authors, friends, overcomers, servants, and centurions through as we wrap up the podcast with it. So I'd like to guide you through these seven questions. The first for Jim McCloskey is, Jim, what is the most influential or impactful book Outside, of course, When the Truth is All You Have by Jim McCloskey. Outside of that one, what is the most impactful book you've ever read? Well, I'd have to say I was a Vietnam veteran. And um, uh, the book that, that, that really impressed me and has stuck with me is by Harold Moore. We were young. We were soldiers once and young, which is about the a battle that he, he was a colonel in November of 1965 in the Iltrong Valley. And uh, it was the first encounter between an American unit and a North Vietnamese. And he tells of that battle and the aftermath of that battle. Uh, I'll, I'll just never forget reading that. And I've read it several times. Thank you. What, what is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a kid that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? That I exhibited as a kid, but, but I... But maybe you don't, I, you I, don't exhibit, exhibit it quietly as brilliantly today. So what, what do you wish you had a little bit more of today that you did at one point have as a child? Well, um, I'm wondering if I could turn that around. Um, the quality I wish I had as a child in school, in junior high, high school and college was courage to stand against the group. Wow. Um, I, I had that courage through my Sunday school faith, my seed of faith, my childlike seed of faith that I had in grade school, I lost 
when I went to junior high. And I, I allowed my, the, the values of my peers to become my values. Mm. I lost my identity. I lost the courage to be who I really wanted to be. Uh, and I did things that I knew were wrong, but I did them because the group, the peer pressure was doing them. And that was through, that was through college, through my fraternity life at college. And um, I had a good time. Uh, don't get me wrong. But on the other hand, when I left Bucknell University in 1964, I vowed that I am going to be my own man. And because I had lost that uh, through my school, through my school years. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's what brilliant. Th that's what um, what really uh, bothered me. Uh, when I, when I think back on my younger years. Jim, if your home caught fire and your family, pets, those kinds of things are outside safe and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what one physical thing would you come back outside with? The Bible. The Bible. I'd reach for that Bible and bring it out because that would sustain me uh, spiritually, uh, regardless of if I lost everything else. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who would you like to be visiting with? That's easy. It's a piece of cake. Abraham Lincoln, <laughs> without a doubt. He's, man, I, I admire that man so much. Um, and I would love to have known him and to, to converse with him, to have dinner with him or to sit on a bench and talk. We've got a picture of Abraham Lincoln hanging up here and he's sit seated there looking very proudly at his young boy. It's a sweet picture that uh, reminds me of, you know, we look at these icons and we frequently forget how in some regards ordinary they are. And so, uh, yeah, right. I would love, I'd love to listen into your conversation with Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> what, what's the best advice that Lincoln or anyone else ever gave you? Well, I'm not, I'm not, I don't go on LinkedIn, so that, that wouldn't be it. But the best advice I had, I guess, as I think about it, would be from my father, my dad. And my dad told us to, be, to do two things, always to be honest and uh, to be prepared. Uh, be prepared. Prepare yourself, whether it be homework in school, which I didn't do, or uh, whether you're involved, whatever adult activity or endeavor you're involved in, be prepared to do it. Do the homework that's required prior to doing it. Jim, you, you hinted at the answer to this a moment ago and in a previous answer, but here it comes again. If you could go back in time and whisper some encouragement or advice into your, your 20 year old self, what advice would you give yourself? Be your own man. Right on. Period. Jim McCloskey, who absolutely is his own man. He is a centurion. All great people, it has been said, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Right. Uh, I, uh, here's how this, that sentence should read. And I'm going to quote the great prophet Micah, who said, what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God? That's what I try to do. Jim, thank you for doing kindness and loving mercy and walk, walking humbly, although sometimes pretty loudly 
with God. It is an inspirational story. You truly are a remarkable guy. And I think what makes you in some regards so remarkable is how ordinary the journey for it was until you decided to make a big right-hand turn to change not only your life, but now the life of 66 other men and ladies who you've helped release from that bondage. It's an incredible story. I thank you for living it. Thank you very much, John. And uh, you are an inspiration to me and to countless others for what you've been able to accomplish through your life with unimaginable adversity. My friends, that paid plug right there was spoken by Jim McCloskey. He is my friend. I love him like a brother. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. Keeley Companies aspires to be a true leader for businesses and communities. In the words of their CEO, my friend, his name is Rusty Keeley, with a world-class culture, focus on people, and customer-centric approach. We're truly in the business of people. Check more out about Keeley Companies at KeeleyCompanies.com.